o lazo. <coughs> Just to touch in on the last section of the text that we are looking at. And by the way, the text is now available. Uh, just as the notes were previously, the notes, the, the text now is available, front desk. You can either get it digitally or you can get a hard copy. Easy, just ask. Okay. And it's polished. It doesn't have those awful mistakes where Andrea would definitely scold me. If he saw all the mistakes in the earlier translation, he said, oh, I thought you were a good translator. Oh, not so good. I think I've cleaned them up, so now I'm not embarrassed if he sees. So in the translation... I'm not going to read much back, but just that very brief summation, the last section we looked at, was where he's now enumerating, going through one point by one point. First one, focusing on the inhalation or exhalation, if it's long or short, remember? Or when it's long, and then the second one, it's short. And then the third one, observing the entire body, including the pores of the body. And then when the, it, and it did read, there was a typo in the last one, when the inhalation and interim inhalation have ceased, and then it continues on. So now he's talking about the refining, the wonderful refining. Raptu jangba. Total really. Raptu means something quite, quite wonderful, exceptional. Refinement, balancing, tuning of this bodily formation. One breathes in, one breathes out. And so those first four stages, those were out of the 16 stages, the stages pertaining to shamatha. Before jumping into the, the Pashana section, I'd like to make a comment I think might be helpful. And that is there are some people for whom coming from the outside in, so to speak, is really skillful means. That is where we're going. We're going to the substrate consciousness. Everybody knows that by now. That's what shamatha is. Your coarse mind dissolves into subtle continuum of mental consciousness with the five jhana factors and all of that. So that's, that's our destination. And then it's a matter of strategy. Okay? So there is a strategy by means of which you really come in from the outside in. And that is through mindfulness of breathing, this full body awareness, right? And then with that quality of awareness, and I've really now strongly emphasized the parallel between bringing the quality of awareness to the space of the mind and watching the mind heal, bringing that same quality of mindfulness to the body and watching the body heal by way of its energetic system, or call it the nervous system. But that it's really quite remarkable that just by bringing that quality of awareness, that's ease, loose, and so forth, and gradually enjoys the process, that you actually are observing just the many, many imbalances, blockages, and so forth in the body, unraveling, dissolving, just like in settling the mind, but you're coming from the outside in. So it's physical. It's physical. It's energy within the body. And then by the energy, finding its balance, becoming ref refined, as he said, wonder wonderfully refined, coming from the outside in, like in, pro like in the yoga system, coming from the asanas. That's really outside. That's muscles and, and sinews and so forth. And then coming into the, the prana system and then coming in, culminating in samadhi, of course. Well, similarly here, we're working by way of explicitly with the breath, hyphen, the prana system, and br by bringing, by wonderfully refining this because of this intimate interrelationship between prana and mind. By doing that, you are wonderfully refining your mind by the power of wonderfully refining the bodily formation, specifically the, the prana system. And so it's really kind of a physiological approach to samadhi. And there it is. It leads you right to shamatha, as he says. Okay? So if your body is a rather pleasant neighborhood, we're hanging out in the body, 
being present with the body and all the sensations, all the population of your body, is kind of a nice place to hang out. And you enjoy the practice. And you love the soothing quality of it, the restful quality of it. The re- you kind of like it. And you're starting out with a nice neighborhood. Then why not? It's good, right? And then by that, kind of there, there arises this momentum and it comes into the mind. The mind settles in natural state. And when the mind settles in natural state, of course, that means the mind dissolves. And it dissolves into the substrate consciousness. So there's one strategy. If you're starting out with a nice neighborhood, why not hang out there? Got a good body? Feels a nice place to hang out? Good, why not? Now, some bodily neighborhoods are not, not, not that nice. But the mind might be quite good. The space of your mind and the events coming up and so forth. Maybe not too brutal. Maybe not, you know, really dark part of town. In which case, then you can let your primary practice be settling the mind at the natural state, disengaging to the best of your ability, all of your attention, from the physical entirely. I mean, the whole physical world, but of course your physical body as well. Just say, not now. And you are really directing it away from all five sensory fields, very much including your body. And you're focusing just on the space of the mind doing the same practice, and then you get to watch the show. You get to watch your mind heal. You get the front row seat of how, with that quality of awareness, the many blockages, the the knots, the tightnesses, and so forth, the afflictions, the obscurations, gradually settle, 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 evaporate, and you watch your whole mind dissolve into, that is, that space dissolve into the substrate, and your mind dissolving into substrate consciousness. So by so doing... You don't have to practice mindfulness of breathing for one second. Padmasambhava never mentioned mindfulness of breathing. Lerap Lingba never mentioned. Dujum Lingba never mentioned mindfulness of breathing. So you don't have to practice any mindfulness of breathing at all. Otherwise, they would have said, oh, this is one more thing that's indispensable. They don't say that. Right. So you don't have to get to the mind by way of the prana. By settling the mind as natural state, that's going to not only lead you into the substrate consciousness, but that's going to definitely necessarily have the impact on your prana system that it gets balanced. And your whole body system will get balanced because there's just no way you can achieve shamatha with the mind and not with the body. Because the whole system, an integrated system, all has to settle. And that's why you have this whole pliancy, the suppleness of body and mind taking place when you achieve shamatha. But nobody achieves half of shamatha. You just get the pliancy and all of that and the bliss just in the mind, but on the body is a torturous, you know, dead end. Not possible. But you can have that all implicitly, all that taken care of in the body by settling the mind in the natural state. Okay? So two avenues, very complementary. Now some of you may find, even my mind is not very nice neighborhood. Number one, it may be just boring. But number two, it may be really a place I don't really want to hang out with. Is I've, I'm, I'm already, you know, seen enough. <laughs> you know, there's some movies. I mean, I have seen some movies where... After I've watched 15 minutes, I know I have no interest in how this turns out one way or another. <laughs> you lost me at hello. <laughs> you know? Just the opposite of the old movie. The Jerry Maguire movie, wasn't it? You lost me at, lo- you lost me at hello. <laughs> you know? I, watched the, I just watched it start and I said, this is going to be a, lo- a lousy movie. Yep, you're living down to the promise. You know? In which case, if you find out that even your mind is not really a neighborhood you want to hang out in for whatever reason, then you really don't, this is the message here, you really don't have to be present for the mind to heal. That is, you can be focusing on the body and the mind heals. Right? Mindful is the breathing. You can focus on the mind and watch the mind heal. 
or you can just bypass the whole system. Whatever's happening in this life, this particular unique configuration of body and mind, not interested. It's really a short story anyway, and why should I get all that interested? I've had so many lifetimes before, and this is only one more. So, and it's short. I don't even know how short. So don't expect it to really engage my interest all that much because it's so short. Let me attend to something that has some staying power, something that goes deeper. And so just by going into awareness of awareness, on a relative level, you've gone now to your core. It's by nature blissful. You don't need to fix it. It can't be fixed. So it's this, it's this facsimile of Rikpa. It's not Rikpa. But there's nothing you can add or subtract to Rikpa to make it better or worse. And likewise, your substrate consciousness is what it is. It is by nature, when, you, when it's clearly unveiled, it is by nature blissful, luminous and non-conceptual. That's just how it is. Right? So if you just focus there, in that stillness, serenity, the luminosity, all the more if you can begin to enjoy it. That's enough. You've gone right to the core. And by staying right there, your mind will heal. And by staying right there, the whole energy system of the body will sort itself out. And you don't need to watch. It doesn't need you as a witness. It'll take care of itself. So we have really three options there. I mean, of course, there are many other techniques as well. But these three are all legitimate. They all work. They've all proven themselves. Science, modern science, is still kind of experimental phase. It's only been around for 400 years. You know, so how is it going to work out? Well, don't quite know yet. You know. But this, oh, this is three or four times the history of Western science. This is old science. This is really old science. So I think it's good to know that we have these options. Each one is available to all of us. And of course, then, we can do combinations. That works. Combinations are fine. But any one of the three cannot be overemphasized. Any one of the three as a standalone is quite sufficient. We'll do all the work. Coming in from the body, coming in by way of the mind, or just coming in by way of the center and staying there. So this final one, this awareness of awareness, it's, so, it's not Vajrayana. I mean, it's straight Sutrayana practice. No initiations, no empowerments, no nothing like that. But it really has a kind of the taste of Vajrayana in the sense that one of the core characteristics of, of Vajrayana as a whole, just generically, is Debu Lamdu Kerwa. You take the fruition, the culmination of the path, as your path, right? So it's like you're reaching a long arm out into the future and saying, where's my Buddhahood? Oh, there it is. You pick it up with the tweezers, and then you say, I'll take that right now, thank you. And you take your future Buddhahood, and you make that your path right now. It's taking the path... The, path, the fruition as the path, right? So I won't, I won't elaborate on that. There, there are so many great Vajrayana masters in the world today. They don't need my commentary. Uh, but this little practice here, shamatha without a sign, awareness of awareness, it's saying, you know, I've already got a substrate consciousness, and even though it may, may not be all that evident right now with its bliss and all of that, nevertheless, it's there. And it's not only, it's not only that I'll realize it one day in the future, but it's already there right now. So I'm going to take my tweezers, and I'm just going to take the fruition as my path. Thank you very much. And I'm not going to add or, anything, add or subtract anything from it. I'm just going to take the, the characteristics of the substrate consciousness, and that's going to be my path. And so I'm going to do my best approximation of resting in the substrate consciousness from the beginning, and then let the substrate consciousness simply unveil itself. 
until Shamatha rises up to meet me, the great big beautiful fish of Shamatha comes, swallow me. Okay? So it's quite elegant in its simplicity. Okay? Olasu. Let's go back to the text. We finished the first four phases of the Shamatha phase, now we move into Vipassana. And I'll move fairly quickly here, because this is again more sowing seeds for the future. They'll germinate in their own good time. So Asanga continues here, thus, if one diligently practices mindfulness of the inhalation and exhalation, if such a person attains the first or second jhana, at that time, inhaling, while authentically experiencing joy, this is the pritti, the enjoyment, one, experiences, one practices noting the inhalation while authentically experiencing joy. Now this authentically is a yang dakpar. I think it's a really good translation. I'm kind of attached to it. Yang dakpar Yang dakpar. Gawa yang dakpar You're authentically experiencing joy. What does that mean? With none of the junk piled on top of it. My joy, I, it's permanent. Oh, uh, uh, uh. No, just taking it straight. Just, there it is. You're authentically experiencing it as it is with no additions. This is naked joy arising through the practice of shamatha. It's one of, the, uh, one of the jhana factors, of course. So when practice is noting the inhalation while authentically experiencing joy, if one authentically experiences joy while exhaling, one practice is noting that one authentically experiences joy while exhaling. So now we're moving into shamatha territory, but again it's reminiscent. Here we are way down at the bottom of the pyramid, Shravakayana, right? For those Hinayana people, right? And yet we're finding these reflections up way up there in the stage of completion. The union of bliss and emptiness, right? Bliss and emptiness. Whoa, that's way up there. You're, you're doing facsimiles in stage of generation, stage of completion. You're getting the real, the real deal as the energies are coming into the central channel. You have the four blisses coming up. And it's all about the union of bliss and emptiness. Well, what's he doing here? This is not Vajrayana. This is Shravakayana. Nevertheless, you're, ex- you're authentically experiencing the joy. You're experiencing egoless joy, joy devoid of self, pure, unadulterated, straight joy. And you're realizing it with wisdom. So there it is. It's bliss and it's wisdom. It's bliss and emptiness of a self, emptiness of delusion. As you breathe in and you breathe out. So it's kind of like this nice, luxurious flow of in-breath, out-breath. In the meantime, you're mining the wisdom of your own mind by actually realizing the nature of the, j- the joy or the bliss that's coming up. Okay? Now we move on. Six. So that was stage five. Out of 16, we just did five. If one attains now to six, if one attains the third jhana, which is devoid of joy. And that's why? Because it's gone too subtle. Joy has still got real buzz to it. You know? But the sukha, the well-being, is subtler. It's more like a feel rather than the, the sharpness of bliss or joy. So the third jhana you've moved, you've transcended to a subtler level. So it's now transcended the roughness, the coarseness of joy, but it is not, uh, or it's still embracing the jhana factor of sukha or well-being. If one attains the third jhana, which is devoid of joy at that time, inhaling, and I have to add, I just see something. One more little typo. Authentically experiencing well-being, one practices noting the inhalation while authentically, I should probably send this out again, authentically experiencing well-being. If one authentically experiences well-being while exhaling, 
One practice is noting that one authentically experiences well-being while exhaling. Exhaling is a lot of words, but the meaning is very simple. And that is, as you're going, it, as you're going, going all the way up to the third jhana, you're applying your wisdom. The vipassana is right there probing into the very nature of the jhana factors themselves. So while joy is still present, you realize its nature, empty of self. When joy is vanished, because you've gone to a subtler dimension, well-being is there, sukha is still there, and then you authentically experience it without delusion, without grasping, without clinging, without the ahamkara, the eye-maker. Then we move on. Beyond the third jhana, there is no practice of mindfulness of breathing. For a very good reason, there's no breathing. Fourth jhana, breathing ceased. Right? Thus, such states are declared and identified as being beyond the third jhana. It's, that really is the demarcation. Okay? Now, if, while authentically experiencing joy or well-being, due to a lapse of mindfulness, there arise such thoughts as, I exist, there is myself, I will exist, I will not exist, I will have form, I will not have form, I will or will not have discernment, or I will neither, I will neither have nor lack discernment. If any such thoughts arise, then the volitional discerning factor has been agitated by confusion, so it's bringing up old imprints, and one's agitated thoughts manifest and are formed together with the arising of craving, immediately upon their arising, one ascertains them with intelligence, or prajna, so you see it's coming up. I mean, it's so similar to settling the mind in its natural state. You see the grunge arising, but rather than being cognitively fused with it, you view it with the eyes of wisdom. Here, really probing or gaining insight into them by way of prajna or vipassana. So immediately upon their arising, one ascertains them with intelligence and not dwelling in them. That's the cognitive fusion. Not dwelling in them. One abandons them, dispels them, and removes them. Okay? So there's the real vipassana edge. You're seeing into their nature. When one authentically experiences mental formations and inhaling, upon wonderfully refining mental formations, one practices noting the inhalation. Oh, then one, not when one. Then one authentically experiences mental formations and inhaling upon wonderfully refining mental formations when practices noting the inhalation upon refining mental formations. Then one authentically experiences mental formations and exhaling upon wonderfully refining mental formations when practices noting the exhalation upon refining mental formations. So again, this ongoing sense of just bringing wisdom right there into the jhana factors. Then nine, even if one does not attain the actual first, second, and third jhanas, one certainly attains the adequate access. Michopa mepa, michop mepa, michop mepa. One certainly attains the adequate access to the first jhana. I found that quite interesting. I hadn't seen that term, term for a long time. Oh, michop mepa. Michop mepa means there's nothing it can't do. This, in other words, the first jhana, very good if you achieve the actual first jhana, but what he's saying very explicitly here is even if you don't fully achieve the first jhana, if you achieve just the access to the first jhana, which we're all calling shamatha in the Tibetan tradition, yeah, that's shamatha, access to the first jhana, he said there's nothing that that's incapable of. In terms of samadhi, that's enough. Now you can bring in vipassana, bodhicitta, everything else you like, but that really is enough. You'd like to have more than enough, then okay, go for it actual first jhana, second jhana, third jhana, and so forth. But he says, even if you've not achieved the first, second, third jhanas, 
this access to the first jhana, that's sufficient, that's adequate. Relying upon that, this access to the first jhana, or simply shamatha, relying upon that, one examines what arises in terms of one's own mind. The presence or absence of attachment, of hatred or of delusion, collected or scattered attention, depression or elation, excited or unexcited, calmed or uncalmed, evenly settled or unsettled, well-cultivated or poorly cultivated attention, the mind liberated or the mind unliberated. So there it is. All of this sounds quite remarkably familiar because, again, the embryonic form of this is suddenly in the mind in this natural state. Right. Observing the space of the mind and observing all of these events, elation, depression, excitement, non-excitement, and so forth, but without the cognitive fusion with them. This is suddenly in the mind in its natural state, but it's stepped fully over into the realm of vipassana. So there it is. Thus it is said one authentically experiences the mind. And when one inhales, one practices noting that one authentically experiences the mind and the inhalation. One authentically experiences the mind, and when one exhales, one practices noting that one authentically experiences the mind and the exhalation. In other words, you're gaining the Pashana-style insight into the nature of your own mind, including the mental afflictions arising, but also their absence. So that's nine. Now we go to ten. When upon authentically gaining inner calm, the mind is veiled by obscurations of dullness and drowsiness, one presents it with one or another uplifting object or inspiring object. One causes the mind to apprehend it, so really focus on it, and inspires and gladdens the mind. It's an interesting point. You say, oh, wait wait a minute, haven't you achieved shamatha? That should be no problem. But in fact, they, they come back, it's like a spiral. I've seen this in the Vajra essence really clearly because he covers the entire path there, including stage of generation completion. But focusing just on three, the achievement of shamatha, the achievement of vipassana, insight and emptiness, and then going into the realization of rikpa. And for each one of these, he speaks of these having to move through the nyam. And the nyam even after you've achieved shamatha, when you're really moving into Vipassana territory, as you, as you dredged your psyche, moving from the surface level of your psyche down to the substrate consciousness, that brings up a lot of stuff. A lot. You think, whoa, I didn't know it would be that much. But when you go into Vipassana, you're dredging deeper than your psyche. And so it brings up deeper stuff. From a, from a deeper level than, so, deeper level than shamatha. And it's bringing it up. Stuff like, as he said right here, dullness, drowsiness, and so forth. And lo and behold, the same thing happens when you're having realized emptiness and having realized shamatha. You're moving into techu. Once again, he speaks of these nyam coming up. Like, whoa, you think it would be all smooth sailing by now. Well, no, now what you're doing is you're dredging samsara from its depths. You're not just dredging your psyche. All the way down to the ground of samsara, you're dredging it from its depths. And they have to do that. Just as you need to dredge your psyche from its depths to get down to what's beneath it, the substrate consciousness, well, now you need to dredge samsara down to those depths so you can see what's beneath that. That's rikpa, which is equally the ground from which both samsara and nirvana manifest. And so 
this is a recurrence, but, on, but it's not just the same old, same old, oh, gee, I, I guess I've no longer achieved shamatha. No, you've achieved shamatha. But there's a spiraling motion of going dredging deeper, the purification taking place on a deeper, deeper, deeper level. This is why after you've realized rikpa, it's really intense, after you've realized rikpa, and you're now really fully accomplished and prepared, a suitable vessel for the practice of tutgal, the direct crossing over, Lo and behold, there's another whole set, another whole domain of, of purificatory practices called rushen, isolating or, or differentiating samsara from nirvana. And now you're doing the deepest dredging possible, but doing that dredging. Now, my goodness, you're a vidyadara. You think, oh, now I just I cruise in, you know, I just sail smoothly. No, not so smoothly. The rushen is really important. Deepest purification, the final purification before you go the final leg of the journey into the Tutgel, and you come to the end of that one, and then you fully manifested all the qualities of the Buddha mind. Right? But way, way up there, even there, there are things to purify. Okay? And it just goes deeper, deeper, deeper level. So here it is. He's talking about your mind. So upon, if you gain the inner calm, and yet still the mind may be veiled by obscurations of dullness and drowsiness, so then you apply antidotes. You inspire it. You uplift it. Thus, it is said, when one gladdens the mind and breathes in, one practices noting that one gladdens the mind and the inhalation. When one gladdens the mind and breathes out, one practices noting that one gladdens the mind and the exhalation. In other words, you're still balancing the mind, but it's on a much deeper level now, really deep existential level. Moving to 11, when one clearly sees that the mind has been, has been veiled by the obscuration of either excitation or anxiety, Oh, that's one of the five. That's one of the five obscurations. Son of a gun! What are you doing here? Oh, the dullness and drowsiness. That was that was another. You, you're still, you're like a rash. But then you might recall, of course, when you've achieved the first jhana, or even all the way to the fourth jhana, have you eradicated any of the five obscurations? Nope. They've just gone dormant. Now you're eradicating them. Now you're with with a blade of vipassana, one by one. You're pulling them, pulling them up by their roots. So this is the last you'll see of them. We're well into Vipassana territory now. So you subdued them. You gotten them to go dormant by achieving access to the first jhana or the first jhana itself. But now with the blade of Vipassana, we're really going in and cutting them off. But when you see that, the mind is obscured by either ex- ex- excitation or anxiety when one forcefully gl- grasps the object. This too should be familiar. That when do they come? When we are grasping too firmly. Excitation and anxiety come. You recall that. When you don't grasp firmly enough, then you fall into laxity and dullness. So when you see this, one presents it, the mind, with one or another uplifting object. One solely draws the mind inward, calms it, and concentrates it. Thus it is said, when one concentrates the mind and breathes in, one practices noting that one concentrates the mind and the inhalation, when one concentrates the mind and breathes out, one, one practices noting that one concentrates the mind and exhalation. And the, ex- the exhalation. Still doing tiny little fixes here. So there it is. But now this purification is not simply subduing. You're getting there now and really purifying. That's 11 out of 16. We're getting close. When one, it's 12. When, has, when, when one has fully devoted the mind to this practice, cultivated it, and engaged in it repeatedly, as a result the obscuration of the source of suffering is removed. Okay. 
Now we've gone down right down to the level of craving and delusion. The obscuration of the source of suffering is removed and the mind is purified of obscurations. Okay, going right down to the absolute core here. Thus it is said, when the mind is liberated, when one breathes in, one practices noting the mind's liberation and the inhalation. When the mind is liberated and one breathes out, one practices noting the mind's liberation and the exhalation. Now very deep. But we go deeper, 13 out of 16 coming up. One must eliminate the remaining propensities of obstacles to the path of liberation from obscurations. In order to do so, one accurately recognizes the impermanence of formations and by realizing the path. Okay? So a deeper, more penetrating realization of emptiness, of, of impermanence. Thus it is said when one observes impermanence and breathes in. One practices noting that one observes impermanence and the inhalation. When, obser- when one observes impermanence and breathes out, one practices noting that one observes impermanence and the exhalation. Thus, on the basis of the first, second, or third jhana, or adequate jhana, so you know what that is, access to the first jhana, one engages in shamatha. So all of those generically, first, second, third jhana, fourth jhana for that matter, but the access, the adequate access to the jhana, in those ways one practices or engages in shamatha. Now by observing impermanence, one engages in vipassana. Such a person's mind, being thoroughly cultivated in shamatha and vipassana, is liberated from afflictive propensities in the domains. The domains for the Tibetan speakers is ying. don't know a better, better translation. Maybe there is one. But in the domains. Okay, well, what are the domains? Well, then he says, what are the domains? Ah, thank you. They are the, this is now very, very high practice. So if you even have just a conceptual inkling, that'll be enough for now, the seeds. And we get back to our practice. What are the domains? They are the domains of elimination, of detachment, and cessation. Due to the elimination of obscurations to be overcome by the path of seeing, in terms of all formations, there is the domain of elimination. So that first domain associated with path of seeing. Due to the elimination of obscurations to be overcome by the path of meditation, in terms of all mental formations, there is the path of detachment. Okay, so now we have a link there with the path of meditation. Due to the cessation of all aggregates, there is the domain of cessation. He doesn't say so, but that has to be associated with the path of no more training, the fifth path. Focusing one's attention on the three domains in peace, well-being, and freedom from illness, one cultivates shamatha and vipassana. So by devoting oneself to by, by devotion to such practice, by its cultivation and repeated practice, the mind is liberated from the remaining obscurations to be overcome on the path of meditation. So they are almost finished. Thus it is said, when one observes elimination, detachment, and cessation, and breathes in, one practices noting the observation of cessation and the inhalation. When one practices, when one observes elimination, Detachment and cessation and breathes out when practices noting the observation of cessation and exhalation. Thus, upon dispelling the, afflict- the mental afflictions to be eliminated on the path of seeing and of meditation, one becomes an arhat, whose defilements have been exhausted. Now there's nothing further to do. One has completed the various aspects of the practice. Such a person 
is said to be thoroughly trained by way of the 16 aspects. Whatever is included in this five, in, in these five, sorry, whatever is included in these five thorough trainings is called mindfulness of the in and out breath. If an individual who tends to rumination, who is totally involved in that, caught up in his internal issues, and is distracted, if such a person really applies himself to this practice, that person's disturbing ruminations will cease. Very swiftly, his mind will remain totally on the object, and true delight will authentically arise in the mind. That is the fivefold purifying meditative object for individuals who tend to rumination. That's it. Okay. So the seeds are planted. Hopefully helpful. And let's return to our practice. Settle your body, speech, and mind in the natural states. Now each of these three routes, these three paths to the substrate consciousness, by way of the body, by way of the mind, or by way of awareness itself, which when unveiled, manifests as the substrate consciousness. 
by any of these three avenues, we all lead to a state of clarity, of inner stillness, which is the platform for exploring the very nature of reality, for gaining immediate, profoundly transformative and liberating experience, realization of emptiness, gaining through your own experience direct realization of what are the true causes of genuine happiness. Where does it come from? And you will know. And what are the true causes of suffering? What is the true source of suffering? And you will know. And you will know that this body, this mind and awareness itself, are neither a self nor are they owned by a self. We can throw off the shackles of such conceptual projections and experience the body, the mind and awareness as they are, free of additions, nakedly. So choose your own avenue. Way of the body, the mind, or awareness. And when you settle in, when you come to something at least approximating, a state of flow, then closely apply mindfulness with discerning wisdom, intelligence, to ascertain the nature of that which you are experiencing. And let's continue practicing now in silence.
mazo. Olazo. So here's a question from Danny. Danny Morris by the by the handwriting, I think. Yeah, correct. Only his. So, and of course, how many Dannys are there? Not that many. So do you think it is possible for technology to aid in the development of shamatha? For example, neurofeedback, real-time fMRI, etc. As it is learned what the neural signature is for a state of concentrated meditation, decrease of rumination, a single-pointed attention, not the default mode network, would having that information a feedback, a feedback be useful to give an indication you are headed in the right direction. I would assume this might be helpful in the very beginning stages of just getting a feel for the practice and would, you, and would just be a distraction in later stages. Do you see any disadvantages of major issues or major, is- or major issues with this approach of technology-aided practice? I think you would diagnose it exactly right. Yeah, I have really nothing to add or subtract. Uh, I'm working with one neuroscientist. In, uh, he's an old friend of mine. In fact, back in 19, 20 years ago, um, when there was Francisco Varela and Richard Davidson, Cliff Saron, and the person I'm referring to, Greg Simpson, uh, we took a bunch of equipment up in the mountains above Dharamsala to do a bit of research with the yogis there. So Greg, Greg Simpson was part of that team, very fine neuroscientist focusing on attention, and he's working on exactly this type of software. Um, but I think exactly what you said is right. Uh, in the early stages, just to get you a feel, and especially, again, considering the kind of the background, the, you know, just the, the ADHD society we're living in, which is largely technologically driven with uh, video games and iPhones and Internet and just cell phones and just the massive influx of so much information and so much entropy of mind or ADHD is resulting of that. If technology can drive us crazy, maybe a little bit of technology can help us drive us in the opposite direction, you know? Back to a bit of sanity. So I think that's exactly right. I think this might be very well be used in education, and we're exploring this. Uh, it might be used for people who are actually are clinically diagnosed as having ADHD, so it may be difficult for them to go straight into shamatha practice. Say, so, yeah, but that, that's the problem. I can't do it. Well, there may be some technology, some feedback, whether it's newer feedback, there's EEG feedback, uh, which might be very, very helpful. Uh, so yeah, there's a lot of interest here. Uh, and so yeah, to get, you, to get your feet wet, to get started, and then, and then move beyond it, okay? Then move beyond it. I would say, and I think this is really quite benign, really quite benign, uh, in a way that's not so benign, but nev- nevertheless may be necessary. Um, since I know people who are professionally engaged in the study and the treatment of ADHD, where people have really severe ADHD, Ritalin can be very helpful. It doesn't help everyone who has ADHD, but it does help a significant percentage of people who have this attentional, clinically diagnosed attentional imbalance. So there it is. Does it have side effects? Yeah, and they're not good, right? And so there it is. But now if with a really wise combination, drawing from modern biomedicine with its drugs, but then also drawing, think, just if everybody can approach it, and it would be just marvelous, because I've been very critical of pharmaceutical industry, just certain aspects of it, not at the industry as a whole. But if there were elements in the pharmaceutical industry that recognize, you know, we're here to produce a product and make a profit, but we also recognize that it would be better if people were not drug dependent. If they could really say that open and really mean it, all my criticism would vanish. 
you know, it just totally vanished. I say, well, then thank you. Full partners now, full partners. But yes, the drugs may really have a place, but then we're going to work together collaboratively with medical doctors and so forth to see how we can get people to be less and less dependent on the drug and so they can look back with gratitude, thank you for the drug, that was really helpful in early phases, but now I'm becoming more and more independent and I'm so independent I don't need my meditation teacher anymore either. That's what we really want because meditation teachers die. They move away. They do all kinds of things. So we don't really want to have a lifelong dependence on anything outside of ourselves. Lifelong dependence on your substrate consciousness. And from now to Buddhahood, dependence upon your rikpa. That's good. So yeah, so I see no, no side effects here with the one caveat that if one started liking this so much, you know, maybe some, some array of feedback, you know, the computer and the software and the feedback and so forth, and you started liking it so much, you could then become dependent on that, just like people bec- become dependent on drugs. And if then one would say, yeah, but what's the problem? I mean, this isn't a drug. It's not addictive. No, you're just getting more and more habituated to it. Um, but the problem would be that if one overused such technology, then that means you're underusing a faculty of your mind that is absolutely indispensable for proceeding very far along the path of shamatha. And that's introspection. So you're letting a... A, an external technological proxy come in and do the word of in- introspection, which means introspection says, you know, sits back and smokes a cigar and say, take over, I'll just watch. Except for I won't watch, I'll just smoke my cigar. You won't develop it because it's not, it's not being used, right? So that's a long-winded way of saying, yes, I think you've got it spot on. It really could be, there could be some very good technology. It's being developed by different people right now. Uh, could there be technology? For example, when one developing compassion, it's very easy to uh, to conflate or confuse genuine compassion with mere sympathy or sadness or attachment. Very easy. They can look a lot alike. You know? Just like self-centered attachment can look a lot like love or loving kindness. <laughs> it's really not. And so could there be technological devices, software, feedback systems, uh, because they know now there's an outstanding neuroscientist by the name of Tanya Singer who has actually found different neural correlates for empathy versus compassion. She's worked with Matthew Ricard. He really knows the difference. He's an expert meditator, very fine monk, very good scholar. And so working closely with him, so a very well-informed Buddhist, that, and she's a very, very well-informed neuroscientist, world-class, um, then finding okay, what parts of the brain correspond, the activities of them are correlated with empathy, which correlated with compassion. Empathy is all very good, but it's not compassion. It's the prelude to compassion. Maybe there could be some end, then there's sadness. Now, undoubtedly, the, neuro, the, the parts of the brain activated with mere sadness, grief, and so forth, they've got to be different. They've got to be different. Right? In which case, then, if one could see the feedback, and one's, let's say, practicing Donglen or practicing some kind of compassion meditation, and you had some feedback, and the feedback said, you're just slipping into sadness here. I said, oh, Okay. Oh, right, right. It's not just sadness. It's actually arousing an aspiration. Or you're just, you're just waddle, waddling around in empathy. Oh, yeah, yeah. Right? Or, no, now, it's, now, now you have an aspiration, but it's attachment. Okay, slip back. So I think there really could be, with, with well-informed people on both sides, because there's a lot of sloppy Buddhism. There's not a lot of sloppy neuroscience that I'm familiar with, because I engage with really good neuroscientists, and they really know their stuff well. But on the Buddhist side, there's a lot of sloppy stuff. People who are regarded as authority just because they're popular. 
And that was that same old problem earlier, that there is, you know, to be a neuroscientist, you actually have to, have to, get, have to get an education. <laughs> to be a Buddhist meditation teacher, all I have to do is get a following. Very different. So that, which is simply to say there's just an awful, and among Buddhist meditation teachers, there's a real, there's a very broad bandwidth of people who really don't know what they're talking about. And yet they may be very popular because they say what people want to hear. But they don't know what they're talking about. And there are others that are outstanding and they may have a very small following because they're not telling people just what they want to hear. And there are some people who are very, very good and they're popular. So we have all variety. But um, it's not always obvious who's who. Yeah? Good. Anything coming up here? Yes, we'll start with you, Nicola. So uh, I just wanted to clarify on uh, Sangha's text. Yes. Uh, my understanding of the interim inhalation and interim exhalation. Quite. So um, from what I understand, he refers to um, an interim in inhalation is where, for example, you would in the air comes in, then there is a pause, yeah. and then there is a short, a very short, shorter air coming in. There is, but it's right there in that pause. Whether you are aware of the uh -huh. the prana coming in, because this could be prana coming in through the pores. I mean, it's subtle, right? So all that you, you, you can be confident that you'll be aware of mm -hmm. is that you feel you've breathed in and you, you feel that the inflow of the air, so actual you know, air, coarse air, has come in and it's stopped. But whether it's you know, one-fifth of a second or whether it's a second, who knows, uh, that interval where you, you don't explicitly feel air coming in, you feel it's a pause, that's the interim in inhalation. And th so you notice that the inhalation has ceased, the exhalation hasn't yet begun. Okay, that's it. And then you notice when that interim inhalation has ceased, and that's exactly when exhalation begins. And the exhalation is that, is that occurs in that sense when you really feel breathing out. Air is going out, 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 out. And then when you feel, I gave it all away, then it may be a second, it may be much longer. Where you're sitting there not gasping for air, not feeling at all, like, where's the air? Now you can breathe in any time you like, but you're just sitting there. And you're fine. And that's the interim exhalation. And there's still something, that's what he's saying here, there's a subtle, a subtle exhalation taking place. Uh, and as I think it's on the pranic level. There may be some tiny bit of air, but I think what he's really referring to is a pranic level. Go ahead. So, from the perspective of a beginner meditator, that interim inhalation or exhalation more feel like a pause rather That's than right. actual movement. Yeah. Okay, so I was contrasting this to my experience that sometimes, um, you know, the in-breath or out-breath seems to come in or go out on in two phases. You know, the, the Also true. Also true, yeah. Coming, and then it would sharply stop. Yep. And then, and then come in again. Yeah. So yeah. that's what I wanted to clarify. Those Is are that just second coming uh, interim inhalation? But it sounds like it's not. I don't think so. Okay. I could be wrong. I could be wrong. I never had the oral transmission explanation on this text. I don't think anybody teaches it. I don't think so. I mean, study it maybe a little bit. I, I hit it. So I could be <laughs> wrong. Um, but my sense is no. That he says when the inhalation has ceased. Good. So I think it's on a subtler level. Right? And then you'll re recall in the text there's a point at which he, he draws some correlation between the interim inhalation exhalation, the pores. Remember that? And attending to the whole body. So I think it's getting pretty subtle. But for the time being, if we can simply note the intervals, 
where we don't sense air actually passing in or out, that's good enough. Okay, you're welcome. Okay, let's read another one. And actually, we have only two today. This is Danny part two. Okay. <laughs> you have mentioned several times about deserve it. Uh, I, I don't see it. something Lumrim meditators. It looks like decisive. De deci discursive. discursive. Ah, that's a very unusual way of spelling discursive. Okay. About discursive Lumrim meditations as a possible antidote for laxity or recurring excitation. Yeah, there's no question about it. That's kind of like not debatable. Tsongkhaba lays that out in definitively. Yeah, definitely. For those who, who have not studied Lamrim, what is the essence of this advice? That's easy. Good, and I'm happy to respond. And that is, when you, when you find that you're falling into, falling into laxity or dullness, it's very simple. And we saw that actually in, in the Shravaka Bhumi, in Asanga. Attend to this object or that, whatever it may be, but something that arouses, that arouses, that inspires, uplifts is a nice word in English, that uplifts you, braces you, invigorates you, inspires you. Okay? It could be reflecting upon your guru. It could be reflecting upon the dharma. It could be reflecting on anything in dharma. Uh, generally speaking, not reflecting upon, if you're a heterosexual man, a really gorgeous woman. Uh, that can really get you excited. But it's probably going to take you right out of laxity and dump you right into the other side. <laughs> Which is like an airplane just flying over a field. Bye, whoop. <laughs> You're deposited in the other side. And so oh, now I need to antidote the antidote. Right? So you want to make sure that whatever uplifts you is not taking you over into the realm of attachment, but more into the realm of inspiration, aspiration, sense of enjoyment, uh, and all of that, something uplifting, that is uplifting you towards dharma and not uplifting you towards samsara. Right? So that's for laxity and dullness. Right? Especially if it sets in rather like, like a fog coming in. If you're kind of like slipping into laxity and dullness, then you probably want to break the session, whether you get up and walk around or whether you stay se seated, but then you shift into discursive meditations and, and rousing, rousing your attention. Uh, if it comes in just for a moment, here's where I think the Dzogchen approach is, just spot on. If you just see it encroaching, just a little bit of encroaching, of a little, just a little bit getting soft, a bit of floating, then just do the internal, the internal antibody, and that is karasa. Apply thought. Course investigation. Just boom, come right back and strike the target. And that should be enough. Okay? And then for excitation, for excitation, then to subdue the mind. And there are heavy-handed ways of doing that. There are more gentle ways of doing that. But, the, the, of course, there's just a lot of turbulence in the mind, and it's turbulence oriented towards desires, cravings, attachments, by, by definition. Right? And so something to calm that. So some of the obvious ones to, to kind of sober you up. It's almost like you're drunk. And so what do you give to a person who's drunk? Well... Sober you up, sober you up, get, 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 get grounded, come back here. Or if a person is, is hysterical, just hysterical, what do you do? Get grounded, calm down, loosen up, down, down, down. And so meditations on impermanence, that's a big one. But whatever will just kind of get you grounded, more mellow, more soft, release that energy. Okay? So discursive meditations, those are the ones. And 
Where does Lamrim fit into well-balanced diet of meditative practice? Is it necessary? Well, if it were necessary, then everybody before Atisha would have been wasting their time. Because Atisha invented Lamrim. Shantideva, you look in Shantideva, that's not Lamrim. Starts with Bodhicitta, that's not Lamrim. Right? And Nagarjuna, the jewel garland, and so forth and so on. As far as I know, there weren't any Lamrims before Atisha. And so that means there weren't any Lamrims in India. Because Atisha wrote it for Tibetans in response to the king, was it Yeshayu? Uh, the king coming to Atisha, who invited him, and said, We Tibetans are kind of a primitive lot, we're a bunch of cowboys, you know. And so, would you please give us something that is easy to understand, that is essential, that we can really put into practice and make it concise? Please give us something, because we're, we're sincere. But we're not, they really, they really were not. We are not a sophisticated culture. China was. Tang Dynasty, oh, very sophisticated. India was, oh man, big time sophisticated. 11th century, really sophisticated. Tibetans were a bunch of, bunch of cowboys. It was not sophisticated. Uh, so that doesn't mean they're stupid. It just means it was not a very refined culture. I think probably China and, and India had two of the best at that time. Maybe the best, I don't know, in terms of just sheer sophistication. In any case, Atisha wrote his Chanji Lamki Duma, or Bodhipada Praditam, in response to that request for Tibetans. Right? It's a masterpiece. It's a masterpiece. It's brilliant. Right? Um, but to say that's the, if you're a sincere practitioner... That's the only way. Well, then that just means you don't know about the first 1,500 years of Buddhism. Because it wasn't there. Buddha never taught Lamrim. Nor did Nagarjuna, Asanga, or Shantideva, or anybody before, before, before Atisha. Right? So, it's very interesting in this regard. Uh, when His Holiness, directly under His Holiness supervision, um, established the Library of Tibetan Works and Archives, that's what drew me to Dharmazala when I was, I was in, a, in, a, in a holding pattern, in, a, in an incubator, after studying one year in Germany and learning as much Tibetan as I could. Um, then I went back to Rikon, where I had, had, had been nine months earlier and saw all the monks eating together. Nine months later, I went back and then stayed there a couple of months, as I recall. Uh, and again, with the advice of my lama there, my teacher in Göttingen, saying, before you go, again, spend more time there and brush up your Tibetan, live with Tibetans, and then take off. And I was had every intention of going to Nepal and finding some yogi in a cave with a long white beard <laughs> who would look at me and say, I had a dream of you. <laughs> you are my chela. You have come at last. Come to me and I will lead you to enlightenment very quickly. Why is everybody laughing? <laughs> I thought that was really cute. <laughs> and I would spend 10 years there. I'd spend one decade. I'd become enlightened. And then I'd do whatever felt right. So that was my plan. And then I was, I was there in, in Switzerland, studying with a wonderful Sakya Lama, Sherap Gyanseng. And this bulletin came from Dharmzala. And it said, just about the time I was planning to head east, go off to Nepal, just around that same time, within a month, said the Library of Tibetan Works and Archives is opening up, direct supervision of the Dalai Lama. One-year course will be held, as well as a three-month course for Westerners. If you'd really like to learn Buddhism, here's a place you can learn it well. And I looked at that bulletin, and I said, that's not for me. I have no interest. Classroom situation? 
man, this is what I'd gotten out of. I had escaped from the university. And, oh, a library, just what I wanted, a library. If I wanted a library, I'd stay in Europe. Europe has plenty of libraries <laughs> and classes galore. So I looked at that with total disinterest. I said, and the Dalai Lama's a king. What, what does he know? <laughs> or shall I say, what did I know? In any case, I had no interest at all. But Lama Shira Genzin took one look at that bulletin and said, Alan, go there. Forget Nepal. Go there. I said, okay. So I went, and so directly under, and then His Holiness chose this marvelous Lama. I, don't think he, I simply don't think he could have chosen better. I really don't. So it was Gejing Awantake as, as being the, the Lama, the resident Lama there for the library. He taught the one year, three months of courses. And again, directly under the supervision of the Dalai Lama, His Holiness uh, told Gejing Awantake, teach some Lamrim, teach some Lamrim, but don't start with Guru Yoga. Don't start there. These people know nothing about Buddhism. I mean, and it's really true. I mean, essentially nothing. There were only eight of us in the first one-year class. And I was the only one who came from outside, who responded to that bulletin. All the other seven had, were already living in Dharamsala. So they sent out a bulletin, and it was only for me. <laughs> That's what it wound up being. They gave. And so, but His Holiness told Gishingo and Taige, who is a very traditional, marvelous, and utterly traditional in the best sense of the term, Geshe, who adores his tradition. He absolutely adores his tradition. I don't think there's any aspect of the Galuka tradition that he just not totally, just did not adore. And he embodied it so marvelously. Uh, and his holiness said, no, don't teach it according to tradition. Do not teach Guru Yoga at the beginning. Teach Four Noble Truths at the beginning. The first thing is to teach Four Noble Truths. And then... Precious human remember birth, teach the whole Lamrim, and at the end, now people, after about a year, will have some, some grounding. They'll know really something about Buddha Dharma from the Four Noble Truths, which is the foundation, and then right there through the small, medium, great capacity teachings, right through Shamatha and Vipassana, and then teach Guru Yoga at the end. Now it's contextualized. Whereas if you teach it, and, he, and you know, I don't know what he actually told him, but I know this was the fact. This is what he wound up teaching, and I know it came from his holiness. Um, so to read between the lines, if, when these people have no understanding of Dharma at all, don't even count on the knowing what the Four Noble Truths are, you tell them, okay, now, we'll start with Guru Yoga. Your, your Guru is, uh, view him with pure perception, as faultless and infallible, and do everything he says. Man, that's like Buddha Dharma. Here it is. Come one, come all. This is a tradition of total blind faith. Leave your intelligence at the door, not needed, and just be obedient. How do you miss that message if that's the first thing that's taught? And then how do you say that is in any way compatible with Buddhism? You know? So I think there was great wisdom. And this holiness was only 36 at the time. He was a young man. You know? And he had never been to the West. That was years later. But he already saw this. You know? So... It's an open question. Uh, everything about Dharma fundamentally is pragmatic. I mean, it's, it's, it's medicine. The, the Buddha is the great, great physician. The Dharma is the medicine. And the Sangha are the nurses, are, are companions. And all that really matters, uh, to my mind, I'm, I'm an absolute pragmatist here. I love tradition. I love tradition. I love Tibetan culture. But with all is said and done, all that really matters is, are the teachings doing what they're designed to do? 
the teachings and the practices. And what they're designed to do is to bring us to better quality of ethics, less injurious, more benevolent. Bring us to greater sanity. That's what samadhi is all about. Greater sanity, including the four measurables, bodhicitta, samadhi. Bring us to greater wisdom. So really seeing reality as it is. And all of that for the sake of purifying the mind, liberating the mind from afflictions and obscurations. So whatever practice one is doing, if it's doing that, then it's good practice. And whatever practice one is doing, whether it's Golupa or Nyingma, Mahamudra or Vajrayana, if it's not doing that, if that's not happening, then you have to say, I think, the medicine isn't working. So Lamrim is medicine by one of the greatest teachers in the whole history of Buddhism. I have to say, just personally, my own personal preference, or not pre- prejudice, really, but after the Buddha um, in the Mahayana tradition, there's no one who really quite touches my heart like Atisha. Even Shantideva. Shantideva is really some competition. He's amazing. But Atisha, gosh, if you read his life story, Just amazing. Just amazing what he did. Such just mind-boggling purity. Simple, unadulterated, profound compassion. And such wisdom. And the fact that the authentic Kadampa tradition rose from him is an indication what a magnificent teacher he was. So, he invented Lamrim. Four Tibetans in the 11th century. And that particular, it's like a medicinal herb. You know, I've, I've, as you probably know, I lived for more than a, more than a year with, with Yeshu Dundan, Dalai Lama's personal physician. And they have these herbal compounds with you know, 20, 30, 40, even more ingredients in a single pill. You know. This is a good analogy, by the way. And that is, so Yeshu Dundan, he's still alive and, he, and absolutely extraordinary healer, doctor. He knows everything. I think he's kind of almost omniscient when it comes to Tibetan medicine. I don't know any aspect that he doesn't know. But he, in Tibet, of course, he's living up there at 5,000 meters. And they have this whole array, this whole wide array of herbal compounds that are really pretty much coming from Tibet. And there are four Tibetans living at three, four, five, six thousand meters. You know? It's coming from them and it's for them. And it's, it doesn't heal everything, but it's a remarkably effective medical tr- tradition. And those herbs really work. Again, I would be dead without them, so I know where I speak. But when Yeshu Dundan, this is a, I think it's a very, very good analogy. When Yeshu Dundan then came down to Dharamsala, which is less than 2,000 meters, so five to two, that's a big difference. When he came down to 2,000 meters, then because of his profound, deep, thorough, and also very intuitive understanding of the efficacy of each ingredient that he would put in, because he made all his own medicines, he would know what each one is there for and why the compound. I mean, he just, boy, did he understand it. And so coming down to the lowlands, and we have monsoon in it. You don't have monsoon in Tibet, at least not central Tibet, and so forth. Then he would modify as he's practicing and meeting people one-on-one every week. His, his patients were living there. 
he's meeting with them. And then he's taking their pulse again, and he's looking at their urine again and asking them again. And then, because I translated for him for more than a year, and then later in America, years later, uh, he's asking them, he's watching, he's observing, I gave you medicine last week, what's the effect this week? Did it work or not? I know what they should have been doing, did they do it? Did you follow the diet? Did you avoid the kind of foods I told you to eat? Did you engage in the behavior I told you to do? Did you do it needed from your side? Did you take the medications regularly? Right? Okay, if you've done everything, okay, now it's my job. And then from week to week, he'll often then modify the medi- medications as the person is getting weller and weller, especially if it's a complex array of disorders. So he'll modify the medication from week to week. Brilliant. And each time checking, checking the urine, checking the, the pulse, questioning. But what else he did, which only a consummate master of Tibetan medicine could do, would have the audacity of doing, would he, he would take some of the, the formulas for these herbal compounds and say, look, this isn't Tibet. These are Indians. These are Westerners. These are Tibetans living down here. Maybe they're living even at sea level, you know, down in the lower, you know, southern parts of India. So now I say, okay, given this, all of these changes, okay, and then his mind goes into superdrive, okay, there'll be less of this, uh, 35 ingredients, okay, less of this one, bit more of this one, we'll take out that one, and okay, here's a modification for India, for people now, and this would be more effective. And then he watches, is it effective or not, right? He didn't say, hey, they worked in Tibet, they should work in India, but I won't bother to look, because after all, they should. That'd be a really crappy doctor to do that. And boy, he's not a crappy doctor. So he took the tradition and then he kept it contemporary while knowing that tradition inside and out. Okay? So that's what His Holiness Dalai Lama did. He took Lam Rim, because you know how many ingredients there are in it, and it's in sequence. He took that and he knew this had worked for, let's say roughly, a thousand years. Right? Worked really, really well at 5,000 meters you know, for Tibetans who were raised with Omani Pemehung and their mother's milk at the same time. I mean, they're getting Buddhism from, the, from pretty much from birth, right? And everybody around them, with a few bumbos here and there, and the Hwaza, a few Muslims that you know, but hardly have any impact. I mean, it's wild, you know, overwhelmingly Buddhist. They're raised in that whole milieu and did that, did that formula of Lamrim really bring about that which it was designed to do, develop authentic renunciation, authentic bodhicitta, develop these six paramitas, lead people to the realization of shamatha and vipassana, and all of this nested in the context of a truly authentic and profoundly transformative relationship with one's guru. It had already proven itself effective from the time of Atisha. It worked from the beginning, I worked for a thousand years in that cultural milieu. Now come down to India, now it's a very pluralistic society, Tibetan wa- Tibet wasn't, and now you have these Westerners coming in with so much baggage of hating Christianity, discuss it with Judaism, uh, or complex as this. I mean, all kind, they didn't come there because they loved everything at home just as it was. Otherwise, why go to India? What, for the hygiene? <laughs> it was just too clean at home, it got boring. So people are coming there because they were dissatisfied with what they were leaving. And so then that's what His Holiness did. He said, okay, Guru Yoga, is, is it important? Definitely yes, but is this where it should be in the herbal compound? No, not at the beginning. I think we'll move that around to the end. Four Noble Truths, are they explicitly laid out in the Lamrim? Yes and no. Okay, well, let's make it explicit. Let's say yes and yes. Put it right there up front. Everybody knows what the foundation is. That's common to all schools of Buddhism. Okay? So I think 
that the teaching and the practice of Dharma should be following exactly the lines of giving and receiving medicine. One should be checking. If you're giving teachings, you should check to see whether they're being helpful or not. If not, then don't call yourself a healer. Call yourself something else. A lecturer. But you must see whether the teachings you're offering are helpful or not. You don't put a blindfold on. You know? And so Lamrim, there it is. Indian Buddhism got, got, got along without it for 1,500 years. What is His Holiness emphasizing all over the world these days? Nalanda tradition. Incredibly intelligent, sophisticated, rigorous, and a mode of teaching Dharma and putting Dharma into an academic institution in a highly pluralistic society. Because India has always been pluralistic. And they said, let's keep on coming back to the Nalanda tradition. Nalanda tradition. Because that, even though, of course, it's India 1,500 years or 1,000 years ago, is very different from the modern world, in some respects, it's more similar than Tibet was. Because Tibet was really quite homogenous. It was pretty much Buddhist. India has never been just Buddhist. It's always been a variety of things. And the Nalanda tradition also so intelligent, so intelligent. So I think that's what His Holiness is challenging. And we know that he teaches Lamrim all over the place. So we know he's not abandoned that. At the same time, we also know that he's very contemporary and is a healer who's watching. He's watching. Where is there the benefit? Where is benefit not being delivered? So he's truly the great healer. So Something like that. I think all of this occurs most meaningful when there's very rich, mutually respectful, and trusting dialogue. Dialogue. And that is the teacher, the Lama, the Guru, the Rinpoche, whoever it may be, and the student. That we will assume, if the teacher is authentic, the teacher is offering his or her very best. The best they can offer. Why would they offer anything less? If they're authentic, out of compassion, why would you give anything better than the very best you could offer? But then there's a student, and you receive it, you practice it, but you're like the person who's just taken the medication. Did it work or not? Is it doing for you what it did for Tibetans for a thousand years? Or is it not? And if it's not, then you don't go back with arrogance or disgust or anything like that. You go back with reverence, but with intelligence. And you say, I put these teachings into practice, and they didn't work for me or they did work for me. Because I'm not writing a script here. They did or did not work for me as they have worked quite clearly for a thousand years in Tibet. And I'll end on this note. This was my experience when I went back to India a second time in 1980, having been there the first time in 71, this time coming back directly just to meditate and to meditate under the guidance of His Holiness Dalai Lama, who I thought had been a king nine years early. I kind of, that, the first time I met him, I, that, that particular delusion vanished. <laughs> and so he gave me a meditation. I, 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 I told him the kind of meditation I wanted to follow. You'll never guess what it was. <laughs> and then among the wide variety of shamatha methods, he gave me one. And I'm sure it was the very best one he could imagine that would be the most beneficial to me. He gave it to me. I accepted it with reverence. I applied myself to the practice. And in a couple of weeks, I felt it was going quite well. Relatively speaking, I felt quite well, well. And so I checked in with him. I saw him every two, three weeks, something like that. I came back to him and I said, well, 
over the last two, three weeks, however long it was, uh, this is how my attention has shifted. Uh, it seemed like it was progressing. And he said, oh, in that case, and I won't give the details, and he said, oh, in that case, very good. Then now shift it this way. Now do this. G- gave a more challenging approach. I said, okay. And so I went back up to my cottage way up there on the side of the mountain. And I practiced. I tried. I really tried. I tried so hard. I couldn't do it. I couldn't do it. I really wanted to please him. I really wanted to do it. I figured, you know, it's not going to get any better than this. The Dalai Lama teaching you shamatha, what do you want? I couldn't do it. It was two or three weeks of just, frankly, it was just misery of trying to do something that I just couldn't do. I couldn't figure out, I'm a pretty smart guy, I couldn't figure out any way to do it. And every time I tried, I always failed. But it wasn't just failing, I was exhausting myself. I was just getting wiped out. So I came down the next time, two, three, four weeks later, I can't remember how long, and I came to His Holiness, my root guru for the last nine years. And I said, I tried the method you taught. I just couldn't do it. And I said, and then and then he said, Well in that case, don't do it. <laughs> I'm glad I mentioned. <laughs> Go back, do the other way. No problem. Hmm. That was good. Very helpful. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Tomorrow Sunday, wake up with the thought of loving kindness. Be nice to yourself. Enjoy your day. And if you can be in Dharma, all the better. Okay? Good. <laughs>